This is Authentic. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Authentic. I'm Scott Roger Chafian, back with another author debrief. Today, we're talking with Steve Davies, author of Red Eagles, America's Secret Migs. Hi, Steve. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks, Scott. Thanks right. for inviting me on. Absolutely. Show. Pleasure you. to have you here. Steve, why don't you give us a little bit of your background uh, apart from authoring Red Eagles? Well, uh, so <laughs> yeah, broad, broad, Red Eagles, broad, uh, broad question, right? <laughs> I, I spent uh, about 23 years as an aviation journalist. It's something I continue to do today uh, part-time, but I did it for about 23 years, of which about uh, 12 or 13 were full-time. So I uh, started in my mid-20s, which uh, places me in my mid-40s now, for anybody who's good at math, mid to late 40s. <laughs> um, I come from Cambridge in the UK, so where I live with my family. And um, I've always worked from a journalistic point of view in the aerospace and defense arena. So I started off writing uh, monographs, which are books about one particular airplane, mm -hmm. and I focused on the F-15 as my subject um, uh, of interest. Uh, I was picked up to work for... Uh, most of the major international magazines and the journals as, as a contributor, as a writer. Um, so I did that. And then over the course of the time I've been writing, I've written, I think, 19 books in total. Excellent. Okay. So that's, that's a potted history. All right. And we will we'll link to those books and where you can get those books in the show notes at the bottom of the video. Um, but we're here today to talk about Red Eagles, America's Secret Migs, which is a book about uh, what a lot of people would just refer as the constant peg program, but it's really so much more than that. It's, it really is what the title says, America's secret makes. So let's start with what your motivation was to write this book. What made you want to tell this story? Uh, if I'm honest, Scott, the main reason I wanted to tell the story was because no one had told it uh, so far. So, mm -hmm. so there was, uh, I, I think there's a combination of things going on. The first is that it was, um, certainly propelled along by good luck and good fortune and good timing. So I, I was very lucky to be in a position where I could write the book. And so from a journalistic point of view, uh, I would have to have been a bit of a fool to have turned down that opportunity. Um, but also, I think there's there's a motivation as a writer to tell stories and to bring into the minds um, and the sort of spaces of the audience stories that are new and unfamiliar to them. Um, I, I had read, there's a, there's a fantastic writer called Robert Wilcox, and he had written a book called Storm of Eagles, I think it is. Um, he had written a couple of great books that I'd read, but I think Storm of Eagles is the first one where I had heard about the existence of a secret squadron of MiGs that were flown out in the deserts of, of Nellis. Um, but he was fairly sketchy on the details. He had a picture of some guys sitting in a World War II Jeep flipping the bird to the camera. He talked a little bit about there being this, this squadron, but there not being really any detail behind it. And so uh, I, my interest in the unit and their activities had been piqued by that. Um, so you combine the fact that I was in the right place at the right time with the fact that Robert Wilcox had written this fantastic book, which had sort of whetted my appetite. And then you have the recipe for the motivation to go out and do it. Right. So it's, it's all right there. And of course, now you have to go about the actual fact of writing this book. And there's, you know, there's all sorts of writing, as everyone knows. And writing history is a little bit different than anything else, uh, including current affairs journalism. It's, you know, clearly different than prose. What, for our listeners who are interested in how you actually do this, because we're talking about recollections of people who um, are getting older, like all of us are, all of us recall details slightly differently. Uh, what was that like? How did you go about, first of all, connecting with the various people? And we'll talk a little bit about some of the people because there's some some big names out there. How did you connect with them? And then what's it like trying to meld all those different stories into one cohesive narrative? Okay. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll handle that in reverse order. Then, sure, and, absolutely. And, and we can get to sort of personalities as, as, as you wish sort of later on. So mm -hmm. I said that I was in a fortunate position because the timing was right and I was talking to the right people. Um, the, the, the full story is that I had a friend round at my house who was a former F-15 pilot um, and I'd known him a long time and we were just chatting about flying as we do. And I said to him, did you ever fly against the Red Hats? And he said to me, I think you mean the Red Eagles. And he said, yeah, I flew against the Red Eagles. And he, and he told me the story of flying against the MiG-21 and the MiG-23. And I thought that's incredible. 
And he said, in fact, there was a squadron I was in, and we have one of those guys in our squadron. He had flown for the radials, and then he'd been assigned to this F-15 squadron. And I said to him, well, what was his name? And so he gave me his name. And, and at that point, then, the sort of journalistic uh, juices start to flow. And I'm thinking, well, maybe if I can get hold of this guy, he'll tell me a story, and I can write an article. And so I phoned this guy. I found this, I found this guy on the internet. I found his telephone number. I phoned him, and he was in an airport at the time. I introduced myself to him. I said, I'm an aviation journalist. I'm going to write uh, an article on the Red Eagles. Would you talk to me about it? And he said, no. He said, <laughs> but there is somebody who you should speak to because he's in the process of trying to get the squadron declassified. Um, his name is Jackman Clark, and he works in the Pentagon. And then he pretty much hung up, and that was the end <laughs> of the call. Yeah. So I found Jackman Clark in the Pentagon. I had a phone call with him, and I said to him, look, I'd like to tell the story. What's the deal with the declassification? And he said, well... Uh, I'm in the process of getting it declassified. It's likely to happen in the next year or so, 18 months. Stay in touch with me. So having Jackman Clark, who was the fi- he wasn't the final squadron, but I think he was maybe the penultimate squadron commander of the Red Eagles, um, who was the director of test evaluation as a civilian in the Pentagon, effectively be an executive sponsor for me to write the book, was really the thing that opened the doors to then most of the other people I ended up speaking to. And he introduced me to some people down in, in Las Vegas who had been part of the Red Eagles and were now working as contractors at Nellis. And through that door opening, then I was introduced to lots and lots of other different people. And then it's just a process uh, from a sort of contact point of view of establishing credibility, talking to people, then knowing that you're not going to twist their words or, or abuse right. the privilege of talking to them. Um, and then they will therefore introduce you to other people um, at the same time. And, and I had a, a back catalogue of books that I'd written before that. I mean, Red Eagles was written in 2006, and I think I probably authored five or six other books by that point. So I could point to something and say, look, I'm a Bodo Fide writer. Um, you right. know, you've probably even read some of my work. And in, in some instances, people did know who, who I was. So so that was the process of sort of, of, of finding the people. Um, there's one caveat to that, and I know that you want to talk about the different sort of um, uh, trades, if you will, that are part of the story, so from aircrew to, to, to maintainers, and that is the maintainer community for that particular unit, um, who were very, very closed in their ranks, let's say. So um, they did not want to talk to me. Um, so, so going in, it was fairly straightforward to get the pilots to talk to me. It was fairly easy to get some of the people who have been on the GCI side of things to talk to me and on the administrative side of things to talk to me. But the maintainers were much more uh, cautious about talking to me. And in fact, for the first edition of the book, I think I'd only managed to speak to two or three of them. Um, I wrote a second edition of the book, which I think made them realize that actually they should have talked to me for the first edition. And at that point, then I was able to con- convey more of their narrative in the story. Did you get a sense of why that was? Because I know I've worked around with programs where people can't discuss them or don't wish to discuss them later. I've interviewed people in the same circumstance and everyone has different motivations. Could, was there a, a common thread of why the maintainers in particular didn't want to have that discussion or did it, it did it vary by person? I, I, I can only tell you what I think I know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so if any of them are listening to this, which is, possible but if anyone listening to this i'm not saying this is what happened but this is what right. i think happened uh, i my understanding is they were told not to talk to me okay so w- one of the things that uh, is characteristic of the red eagle story is they started off um completely off the books let's say as far as the air force is concerned the air force didn't want a unit that was highly organized um highly institutionalized was part of the air force structure where everyone walked around um, sort of wearing, you know, smart uniforms and having smart haircuts. They wanted something that was low key, and if you read the book, you'll you'll understand some of the reasons for that. But they wanted this a secret unit to remain secret and to not be conspicuous. And so there was a, a pecking order that developed in those early sort of four or five years of the squadron's operation, um, where certain individuals who were part of the story called all the shots and they told people what to do. Um, and when I started my research uh, my understanding is that one of those individuals didn't like the idea i was going to write the book and so he told them don't talk to this guy okay that's my understanding fair enough and and i can understand that point of view because as we we delve into the discussion and we're not going to tell the story of the book we want people to go read the book because i don't think i know i can't do justice to the story you've told there and i don't think any interview even with you in an hour or so does justice to your product. So 
we don't want to retell that entire story here. Uh, highly encourage people to go get the book. I, I greatly enjoyed it. And I think it's a very important part of history. But that being said, we, we'll talk about this a little bit because I can understand that motivation, having stood up organizations in a brand new, even area of service, you do rely a lot on the pecking order that you described and the, the motivation to get it done. And you're going to get it done right, but sometimes big institutions don't like that, even if that's what they want. But to that, you know, you talked about the clothing and the nonconformity, a little bit of the haircuts and the reasons for that, I think we'll talk about now had a lot to do with the secrecy, right? Because we're talking about an organization that's operating what had within an hour's flight time of, of Las Vegas, uh, up at a very small department of energy airstrip is, is how it started. It's probably good for people listening now, especially if you're any younger than I am, uh, younger than Steve is to take a step back and remember what things were like before the advent of the internet. Uh, when this story began, what is now the internet was barely a glimmer in some defense, uh, DOD personnel's eyes, right. With as the ARPANET and the DARPA net to develop this. So, you know, people did spine the old fashioned way, if you will, right. They, they earned it. And if there was no, if there's no inkling that these guys were anything other than government contractors with long hair, relatively, you know, flying up in a Cessna every day to go work at a DOE range, then there was nothing people were going to follow up on. It just made the process of securing the perimeter that much easier from prying eyes. And I think you go into the book, the, the way they overflew the sites and looked and said, well, okay, even if the one that really struck me was, uh, the first commander going out and saying, well, there is a hill over there and yes, there's line of sight, but it's so hot over here. The, the heat waves are going to distort everything. Right. So it's, it's a totally different time. Uh, and that's what went into a lot of the secrecy in this hierarchy. Right. So I've just sort of prattled on a bit. My, my apologies there to set the scene, but it was so much based around the secrecy and the classification. Let's, Tell the listener what those issues were of classification. First of all, you had to get the, or the material was declassified. I, I won't say you got it declassified. I'm sure the fact of you wanting to write a book prompt thing, prompted things along a little bit. Uh, what was, what needed to be declassified? And let's very explicitly talk about what you didn't talk about due to classification. Uh, because... We do have a lot of listeners who are like, we we are uncomfortable with the thought that you guys might be giving away the farm here. So we are not on all of our podcasts. So we are not talking about anything that is broaching classification. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point. So, so Jack Man Clark was ultimately successful in getting the story of Constant Peg and the 4477th Test and Evaluation Squadron declassified mm -hmm. to a certain degree. So there were some caveats that were put in place by the um, the Air Force, which was that only operation the the guys that I interviewed could only talk about operations at Tonopah, mm -hmm. uh, which is Tonopah is the, is sometimes abbreviated to TTR, so Tonopah Test Range. That's the airport that is, as you correctly say, was DOE run. Um, that's about 90, 90 miles northwest of of um, Las Vegas. Um, so they could talk about operations that were from 1979, which is when the squadron arrived at Tonopah, until the point at which the squadron closed, which was in the spring of 1988. And so he was he was successful in getting most of that declassified. Um, there is an interesting sidebar uh, to the conversation, though, which is that he never got a formal letter signed by the Air Force saying it was declassified. <laughs> Um, and that has only, I, I've only recently, probably in the last five or six years, become aware of that. So as I said, the book was published in 2006, second edition came out in 2011. And then probably, yeah, probably about sort of five years ago, I learned that there wasn't uh, actually a piece of paper that said that the squadron and the, and the story had been declassified. Interesting. So, so, so what was being declassified? Uh, and I can say this because, you know, it's the Air Force now acknowledges that Groom Lake exists green right. lake is the other secret airfield in the mm -hmm. middle of the it's called the nitter the nellis and 
Now let's test and training ranges uh, abbreviated to NITER. So it's in the middle of the NITER, sometimes called Dreamland or the box or the container. Um, that's where the Red Eagles started their life. They started their life flying MiGs out of there. Um, but at the time that this was declassified, the Air Force didn't acknowledge that that place existed. So, so what's What's not in the book is the stuff that they wouldn't they wouldn't declassify. <laughs> right. So um, uh, there there is some mention of Groom Lake in there. There's some mention of, of operations prior to that. Um, you know, this is a story of a, a unit that flew MIGs in order to exploit um, their tactical strengths and weaknesses and to teach the tactical air forces of the United States, that's the Navy, the Marines and the Air Force, how to fight against them. Right. And if you're going to write a book about that, you can't just suddenly say one day they went out and started flying MiGs. You have to talk <laughs> a little bit about where they came from. You have to talk right. a little bit about how the, how the squadron was stood up, what the genesis for it was. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the thing that will, will probably never be declassified around the story is where they came from. And so what you have to do is you have to go and use other means in order to understand where they came from. And there are some simple techniques you can employ. One of them is to go and actually look at the airplane. So there are a couple of MiG-21 F-13s that exist in museums around the world. One of, them, one of them's in Germany. They've got one at the um, Eglin Armament Museum at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. They're, they've got one at Bolling. Um, they're, they're all over the place and you just gotta go and look at them. Now, if you go and look at the one that's in Germany and what was West Germany, but is now in Germany, and you look at it in the right angle, you can see Indonesian Air Force markings that are imprinted into the silver uh, of the wings, the natural metal finish of yeah. the wings. Um, so, so there are ways to go and find out where they came from. Another way to do it is to go and put your head up inside the landing gear, um, the, the nose landing gear bay, and pull out the serial number of the airplane. And then you can go and find the serial number against an index, which will tell you who that airplane was sold to and where it went. So you know, you can figure these things out without having to go and ask somebody to tell you a secret or to break a confidence right. or whatever. So, um, but that's the one, that's the one area of the airplane's history, of the squadron's history that I think will never be declassified. Uh, and it's probably the most sensitive area. And it's certainly the one that you can kind of understand the most cool. why the Air Force wouldn't want to be talking about. Right. It. Absolutely. It's, you know, even knowing where they came from and uh, wonderful detective work there, by the way. Uh, but knowing where they came from is one piece of the puzzle. The way they were made available to exploitation, as you said, is something, some techniques are timeless. And, you know, as a present day reference, we wouldn't want to talk about anything that in 1969 was applicable that maybe is applicable right now to say hardware we might get from an ongoing conflict in Eastern Europe. For example, and you, you'd never yeah. want to compromise those sources. So, so those aren't out there. And then, as you said, the other activities outside uh, Tonopah were uh, not in there. And in fact, there's a whole fascinating subculture, I guess, is the right term around what really happens there and which layers of the onion are overriding which other layers of the onion. Uh, I will say, and I'll tease a little bit of something else we're, we're doing at Authentic, is we're doing an F-16 series, and, and the pilot I interviewed for the first episode of that, uh, one of these little snippets you get, he flew the F-117 as part of his career, and they went up to Tonopah, and he got a bandit number, just like the Red Eagles did, but it was so that they could fly the F-117 and sound like they were part of the Red Eagle. So it... You know, we may never know and we may not need to know these different layers of that onion of secrecy, you know, or are the MIGs covering for the, the skunk works programs, which are covering for the UFOs or the UFOs covering for the MIGs, which are covering for the, you know, however you want to look at it, but all, all great stuff uh, to discuss and great stuff to not specify where we got it, I think. That's one of the interesting aspects of the story, which is that it, it's a great example of a secret hiding another secret. So from, from the outset, um, the, the Red Eagles was, the Red Eagles came ar around at a time when these 
fighter aviators were coming back from Southeast Asia with bloodied noses, realizing that they might have had a technological advantage, but they didn't have a, an advantage in terms of tactics. They didn't have a, an advantage in terms of the way that they had trained. And so at the time that the Red Eagles were set up, um, it, it closely followed the creation of Red Flag, which was the, the idea of which was to get you your nugget pilot through his first 10 missions, make all the mistakes there in the, at the Nellis Ranges, and then hopefully not make them in combat and not die as a result of that. Um, and it was hot on the heels of the formation of the aggressors, which was a dedicated fighting force where the objective was the pilots in that unit would, and the GCI controllers, because they had ground control in set two, would learn Soviet tactics, would learn everything they could about the Soviet um, air forces, um, and then they would replicate that threat for the tactical air forces. And so the Red Eagles came up basically as an extension of the aggressors. The, these guys realized that these MiGs from Indonesia were going to become available and they hatched a plan to use them uh, to take that um, en masse acquisition of very early MiG-21s and turn them into something that the Air Force could really get its uh, sink its teeth into. So, so it, it was a bona fide program. But at the same time as that was happening, um, Have Blue, which was the predecessor to Senior Trend, which it turned out was the F-117, that was also in development. And the Air Force saw an opportunity to hide the Senior Trend program using the Constant Peg program. So what would happen through the early years of the squadron's operational history is the um, F-117 guys would come to them and they would buy things for their setup at Tonopah using money that came from the Red Eagles. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a way of hiding. Right. It was a way of one program hiding another. Um, right. And when those F-117s finally arrived at Tonopah, most of the Red Eagles had not been read into that program. They didn't know what was going on. Yeah. And so because they were curious, the 117s would only fly at night. They would camp out at night and see what it was that taxi right. passed them on the runway. Right. Because, of course, the Red Eagles were only flying during the day. True. Right. So... Yeah, but never underestimate the curious uh, curious mind of a serviceman. That's you know <laughs> probably one of the hardest things to defeat when it comes to security. Um, yeah, I think I, it was. I'm pretty sure it was Parker Geisler who said it to me. He said he, he asked. Um, I think George Jenin was the commander at the time the 117s arrived. So so the the, the MiGs were on the south side of the the, air, the airfield and the MiG, and the 117s were on the north side. And he asked George Jenin what, what it was and. Jenin just turned around to him and said, well, the Air Force is coming. Um, and, and that obviously was a non-answer. So, right. so that night, I think I think uh, guys, Parker said to me, he and a couple of guys got, you know, sort of deck chairs, right. put them out, for, out the front of the hangars and just sat there and waited to see just what would go past. You know, that's the problem with high-end programs, right? They, they employ smart people. And as much <laughs> as you get told, okay, compartmentalized security clearance, need to know, does it turn off your brain, right? So, you know. You don't want the person who's not curious trying to figure out something about how this MIG flies. You want a curious person, but then, yeah. But something you just mentioned, which was about how this came about right after Red Flag and right after the aggressors. And to me, that in reading the book, it really drove home to me very specifically what the purpose of the Red Eagles was. And so as you just very clearly stated, Red Flag had a very specific goal. First 10 missions for a nugget, try not to get you killed, right? In don't don't do those 10 in combat. Then the aggressors existed to replicate Soviet tactics, ground-controlled intercept tactics. And those didn't, and that's one of the reasons you can use an F5 even today to simulate these things. Because you're simulating a relatively constrained range of decisions of actions. In, in what, what was and probably still is a very formulaic system. Constant Peg and then the Red Eagles and the HAVE series of programs before them were really there to investigate the limits of the aircraft, the airframes themselves, right? It, it wasn't how would the Soviets use these? It was if you had the best pilot out there, what could they do with these airframes, right? Yeah, there were two. So, so, so the HAP programs that preceded Constant Peg were were mostly about technical exploitation. So they were mostly about saying, you know, how fast can it go? How how high can it fly? What's its turn rate? What's its turn radius? How hot does the engine get? How many hours can you put on the engine? How, how many cycles on the brakes before you have to replace them? You know, it was all that kind of technical knowledge. Um, and tactical, so it was Air Force Systems Command run, AFSC. Um, uh, and those are the test pilot guys. 
So on the other side of the, the coin, you have the operational guys, the, the patch wearers, the weapon school graduates, the you know, places like the 422 test evaluation squadron unit. Um, and they're more interested in, okay, if we fly it, what tactics do we need to beat it, uh, as you say? And there was an evolution in the way they did that. So initially, it started out with, um, you know, we will just because we want to be very cautious with these assets, we don't want to put them in the dirt. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to have any incidents. We don't want to lose them. Then their national assets. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll replicate what um, an East German pilot would do, or, or what a an Angolan pilot will do or whatever. And I think they quickly realized that that wasn't sustainable. And then you got another level, which was, okay, as you say, um, okay, you've now flown against somebody who's pretending to be East German. Now you're going to fly against the American who knows how to fly a MiG. Um, and at that point, then the gloves are off. But th there was always a balance because part of the culture, um, and Earl Henderson told me uh, about this mantra, was to be cool. You know, be, it was be humble, you cool fucker. That, that was the mantra. I don't know if there's um, profanity low on your podcast. You might, you might have to beep it out. But that was the mantra they used. Was, you know, be humble, you cool fucker. But, so, so, so the idea wasn't to go out and make somebody feel really bad for the sake of making them feel bad. The idea was to go out. And and Parker, again, Parker Geiser told me this. He said, we would go out, we would do an ex we would do a performance profile, we'd do an exploitation. And I would already have told them what I was going to do. And I would already have told them that I'm going to perform a turn you're going to overshoot because I'm going to bleed 70 knots of airspeed in the first, every, every second, I think it was the MiG-21, and a maximum performance turn at 380 knots, it bled 70 knots of airspeed per second. Um, so he would do two or three second turn and suddenly you're 100, 140 plus air knots faster. Now you're overshooting and now he's going to reverse his turn. He's going to be behind you. And he said to me, I'd tell them what I was going to do and they still let me do it to them. So, so the idea was not to just beat them up for the sake of doing it, but but for the sake of teaching them the lesson. Right. And there's there's an ongoing theme um, when you talk to weapon school instructors, Top Gun instructors, aggressors, uh, adversaries. It's not about bullying the student. No one learns from being bullied, but they do learn. I, embarrassed may not be the right word, but they learn by being surprised. They learn by making mistakes. So I think to your point exactly, you're told exactly what's going to happen and you fall for it anyway. That's not bullying. That's a mistake. And we learn very well from our mistakes, I think. Um, yeah. So to the, you know, just to illustrate this point of the have programs and the test pilots and the performance envelopes, it does all fit together. And I hate that I'm going to use this analogy, but uh, I was not an aviator, so clearly not a Top Gun graduate. So I think I can make this reference. Fairly safe in assuming you also are not a Top Gun graduate, uh, Steve. So we, I could do this without either of us having to buy a beer. Uh, you know, you go out and you look at the performance profile of an aircraft, and that's where you get the energy management curves. And you know, where's your where's your sweet spot, and where's the coffin corner? Well, that's what those test pilots are doing in the HAV program. And then you get to something like Constant Peg and the Red Eagles, and they're they're pushing the aircraft to its actual limits. Those two things don't always quite match up. And I hate to say it, but, you know, you go back to the original Top Gun and Maverick's being told, well, you know, the MiG-28 has a problem with its inverted, you know, flight tanks. And he's like, well, actually, you know, that's that difference right there. I hate to use you know, those analogies, but I think that's a good one, which is the science and the intel tells us one thing, but there's nothing like actually doing it. Yeah. And, and if you want, if you want a really extreme example of that, you just have to look at the MiG twenty three. So before, you know, before the Air Force had managed to get hold of the MiG twenty three, so they got hold of their first MiG twenty three from Egypt in nineteen seventy nine, seventy eight, maybe um, seventy eight, seventy nine. Anyway, um, and up until then, the Air Force thought that the MiG twenty three was a good turning fighter, but was slow. And the opposite was true. It was very, very fast, ra very rapid acceleration, but it couldn't turn at all. Um, and so, so in fairness, they hadn't exploited one at that point, but they had done the analysis. Somebody had sat down and looked at pictures of it, and they thought, well, that's what we think its performance is. And of course, right. it was 110 degrees out. And there's a um, small tangent, and I, the person I talked to doesn't, I hadn't really thought about bringing this up during this, so I won't mention any names because I don't have the clearance to do so, but it was a, uh, uh, F, a legacy Hornet pilot 
during the Gulf of Sidrus sort of time frame, talking about how they'd go up, and of course the Hornet's known for its its low speed handling, how they'd get intercepted by Libyan MiG twenty threes, or they'd intercept Libyan MiG twenty threes, and they would just keep backing off the throttle and backing off the <laughs> throttle and their hornets. And so, you know, and of course the MiG twenty three's got its manual wing sweep and the guy's got him all the way forward. He's tried to keep with him until they depart controlled flight and you know, sort of come back and the Hornet guys are just like, ah, you know, you know we, we've got the, the low speed handling. And to your point, you know, you don't, you don't know that unless you exploit something like this in the way we did. So, and these individuals didn't say they learned it through that program, but I'm connecting dots here on who knew who. And I, I think they were pretty confident they were going to be able to do that. That makes sense. Yeah. But uh, so, the, you know, we mentioned the MiG-23. Let's roll all the way back. This starts with the MiG-17 excuse me, which is, in my personal opinion, sort of an underappreciated fighter. You know, a lot of people think, oh, it's just a scaled up MiG-15, which in all fairness, in some ways it is, but it it cleaned a lot of clocks over Vietnam because of its capabilities. And so let's talk a little bit, just let's go through MiG-17, MiG-21, MiG-23. Just sort of give me a feel because you interviewed these guys and I, the book does a great job of, of really describing the pros, the cons, what they did with these things. But from the historian's point of view, the journalist's point of view, sort of give the listener a thumbnail of these planes from an aviator's point of view. Okay. Well, I, I would say exactly what you have just said, which is that the impression I get is that at that time, there was a massive amount of underestimation for the capabilities of the MiG-17 and the MiG-21. So what was happening in, in Southeast Asia and Vietnam was, as you say, the MiG-17 and the MiG-21 as a, as a combination were doing a pretty good job of showing up the F-4, F-105, um, uh, you know, what else was there? Um, F-8s and... Uh, F-8s. I mean, yeah. all, you know, all the tactical fighters that were right. being used, they, all of those tactical fighters were kind of being shown up and... Uh, in Southeast Asia, uh, mostly because of uh, sort of run and uh, you know hit and run type tactics. So they would come in fast, they would shoot some missiles, they would fire the gun, and then they would they would scoot off, which actually wasn't really using most of the uh, capability of the aeroplane. Right. Um, but what the Americans were finding um, when they tried to turn with them was that they were better turning fighters, so the MiGs could outturn them. So they were coming in with the slashing attacks, they were being outclassed in that respect. And if they tried to turn with them and they got slow with them, they'd be in trouble. And so that was really what the Red Eagles were showing through the constant peg program um, in those early years. The, if you try to turn and you got slow with one of these aeroplanes, then the chances are, even if you thought you were in a great turning fighter, you were going to lose. Right. And so the other thing that they illustrated, I think, fairly well was that they were difficult to see. Um, so if you had a Gail Peck, who was the first second squadron commander for the unit, told me that one of the tests that he would do is he would uh, get the guy to fly in front of him, the guy who was exposing to the threat to fly in front of him. Um, he'd get him to do a 5G turn. And then in his MiG-17, he would just sit behind him. And he would just show, show him how difficult it was to see a MiG-17 at your 6 o'clock while you were pulling 5Gs. Um, so these things were difficult to see when they were behind you, and they were difficult to see when you were in front of them. Um, and, and American pilots at that point, the tactical air forces, they were used to training against big aeroplanes. They were looking for another F-4. They were looking for something that had a big platform that you might be able to see seven, eight, nine, ten 10 miles away, maybe. You were looking for something that had smoking engines um, in order to give things away. You didn't get that with the MiG-17 or the MiG-21. Um, what would typically give one of those things away um, at the point at which you were beginning to merge was if they gave you a wing flash. So if they tipped the wing to go into a turn, the sun would glint off of the wing and you would see this little glint and that's how you pick them up. Um, so, so that was, I think those were the things that they were showing about the, the MiG-17, the MiG-21. Um, they talk a lot about low speed maneuverability, particularly at the MiG-21. So you could pretend in your MiG-21 that you've lost nose authority because you got too slow. The guy might think, okay, now I have the advantage, I'm gonna come in. And then because you actually still do have nose authority, you can pitch the nose up and you can hit him with a gun's tracking shot. Um, and you could do that, I'm told, you know, again, Paco Geisler is, is, is the guy who gave me the most detail about the MiG-21. You could do that at 90 knots. You still had nose authority at 90 knots. So at a, at a very low speed from a tactical fighter's point of view, you could still point the nose at somebody and either intimidate him or, or perhaps even, even shoot him. And that's, I, it's just funny how 
as Americans, or speaking obviously for myself, for Americans, um, we don't remember lessons of warfare really well. And, and I'm sure there's all sort of uh, high level political things we could say about that, but I'll take it down to the very tactical, which is we go into World War II underestimating the Japanese zero and come out of it, you know, you, you, the history is replete with the first person stories of everyone from the Flying Tigers to, you know, Pappy Boynton to the, you know, uh, you know, guys flying off the carriers and Hellcats at the end of the war, guys flying off Iwo and P-51s. Don't try and turn with a Japanese fighter, right? Slashing attacks are the way to do it. And we just seem to forget that over time, right? For whatever reason, the U.S. seems to make aircraft that are good at high speed, heavy firepower, uh, and don't try and get into a turning fight. But of course, then there's an exception to all of those. And that's where something like Constant Peg, uh, Red Eagles really helps because you know where the limits are. And I go back to, oh, it it might have been Lamphere, one of the guys on the Yamamoto uh, raid is probably the wrong. Interception is the term I'm looking for. Uh, it is Rex Barber and, and Lamphere were, were two of the pilots who were describing the fact that you, you never go and turn with a zero. Definitely not with a P-38. And one of them just talked about how they got into this turning fight with this zero and they dropped flaps and they pulled and they're like, holy cow, I managed to stay with them. And I don't know, but I'm making an educated guess that what was really happening was they were in a speed and altitude regime where the P-38 was at its absolute peak and the zero was, was at its absolute lowest. But it was all happenstance. And that's exactly what you're talking about here in what we learned through these exploitation programs is I very clearly remember in the book, you have a discussion of what you just talked about with the MiG-21, uh, whereas if you get it above a certain speed, it's not going to turn that way. So if the, if the, if the Western pilot can keep that speed up and keep the fight at that speed, they have that ability. Right, they probably don't want to because you're worried about bleeding your airspeed, as you talked about, and the MIG will maintain nose authority. But it's all about learning these different things. And as you've talked about, and guys that you've interviewed on your podcast, and guys that I've interviewed, uh, being a fighter pilot is a high speed game of three dimensional chess, and you're always trying to think two or three or four moves ahead. And if you can imagine not having an exploitation program. You think you know what the other guy's chess pieces can do. They don't do what your chess pieces do. You think you know what their chess pieces can do. So you can make a moderately educated opinion. But really, these exploitation programs allowed us to absolutely know what their chess pieces could do. Yeah, the other thing they did was, so, so you can sort of logically understand then what you should do and what you shouldn't do. You know, you can make sense of that. You can sit in the briefing room and somebody who's flying the airplane can tell you that. But the other thing that they did, which is 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 impossible to do if you don't have the real thing, is they um, they in the same way as Red Flag gave you the opportunity to do your first ten missions and make the mistakes that would get you killed in combat for real. Uh, Constant Peg allowed you to experience buck fever, so it allowed you to get into the into a situation where you're seeing a real Mig for the first time, and that emotional response is suppressing all the things that you know you should be doing otherwise so it, you know the, the 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 startle effect if you will is overriding all of the other things that you know you should be doing um, and so that's the other thing that it gave you the opportunity to do it, it gave you as you described the opportunity to validate what you know what you think you know or to invalidate it but it also at an emotional level gave you the opportunity to say okay my first mig will be over the uh, tonopar test ranges and then um you know when i see it for real for the first time uh, for, for the, ne the next time and it's in combat then hopefully i won't experience that startle effect right because i think everyone has that with every experience the first time but i think it's probably there's probably very few experiences um other than flying aircraft where that applies because even with the buck fever right you You've probably seen a deer or a buck before, but never through your gun sight. Uh, you've never seen a MIG before. And that's the whole point of this is is getting that sort of, uh, you know, wasn't a fighter pilot, but I'll put it in terms of the first time you're in a given situation overseas somewhere 
uh, your water, your brain sort of turns to water and runs out your ears and you default to your lowest level of training and you hope that that training is good enough. But part of that, like you said, is the startle effect. So let's, let's get rid of that through doing this. It does, it does make me think about some of these new proposals out there of guising, right? When they're going to try and use uh, guising to make things look in a pilot's visor like something else. It'd be interesting to see how well that yeah. works, but that's, that's a different story for a different day. So we talked about the, the birds themselves. We talked a little bit about the pilots, but let, and we don't have to get specifically into given pilots per se, but if there were some general characteristics of these guys, cause they weren't just good pilots, right? They were, I think they were, they were universally good pilots. They had be so, been so well screened and people knew them and knew their capabilities. And there was that I'm, excuse me, I'm not going to bully people in my teaching, but beyond that, there was, there was a something to them, right? Because we've alluded to it. They were starting something completely from scratch, right? And that, that takes a little bit of the cowboy streak, but a controlled cowboy. What, what were the defining characteristics of these guys? Would you say? Um, so it was, you know, probably people in their late twenties, early thirties, initially that they were hiring, they, they managed to go through their careers without pissing anybody off. So they'd obviously not made any poor decisions. Um, but above all, they were uh, fantastic stick and rudder pilots. So they were great tacticians. They were good stick and rudder pilots. Um, and they were the top performing members of the squadrons that they were in within the tactical air forces. So you had um, certainly early on in the program, uh, it was all done by by name requests, which is that the somebody at the unit would say, okay, we're about to lose a pilot who's going off to be reassigned somewhere else. Who do we want to replace him with? And they would talk to all the guys in the in the unit and say, who do you think? And they would come up with a list of names. Uh, and then they would go to the Air Force Personnel Center and they'd say, take these people off the reassignment list because we're going to go and interview them and we'll take who we want. And that's how they did it. So it was a by name request process. Um, and so therefore it was done on the basis of personality and temperament and on the basis of their abilities as tacticians and, the, and their abilities as, as pilots. So, but they're all, you know, you're, you're, you're choosing from a pool of um, type A personalities. So, so mm -hmm. they all therefore share those same characteristics. Um, they're all egotistical. They all have, um, you know, sort of a very competitive streak in them. They, they all want to win. They all dislike losing. Um, so, so those are a given, those, those personality traits. Uh, and then on top of that, you have those other qualities. Right. Um, yeah, it's a pretty narrow apex of that triangle by the time you get to that point, right? So, you know, you've selected to, to get through the physical process of joining the military. You're physically fit enough. You've passed some mental screening. Uh, then you've become an officer. Then you've become a pilot. Then you've become a fighter pilot. We're greatly narrowing the apex already. So to your point, uh, but with those pilots and their abilities and their terrific abilities and what they did, they would not have been able to go out and fly these planes and fly these missions without those maintainers. And you mentioned them earlier in terms of the, the secrecy and the desire to sort of close hold that, which we understand, but let's talk a little bit about what they achieved because we all know stories of maintainers working wonders under austere conditions, under difficult combat conditions, but that's with an entire logistics chain behind you. You know, that's with the power of the U.S. government, who may not always do things well, but when they put their mind to it, if only by brute force, they will they will shove things down to the end user. These guys did not have that, right? What what did it take to keep uh, foreign in? I, maybe I shouldn't say stolen, but illicitly or, or, or clandestinely procured aircraft flying. I mean, you clearly can't raise your hand and say, you know, call up McCoyan and say, by the way, what was the serial number on that pump? Could we, I want to find a, I want to find a reasonable replacement here in the States. I think we, we often talk about maintainers being the unsung heroes of uh, military um, operations, uh, it, you know, obviously from from the flying side of things, because that's where I focus my efforts. Those are the guys who and girls nowadays who uh, keep these things flying, who 
basically make sure that they're operationally effective and and then and therefore enable combat operations to take place. And I, I think that they they are definitely the unsung hero of this story too. I don't think there's any difference there. Um, they were typically drawn from individuals um, or units at Edwards uh, Edwards Air Force Base in, in California, where um, the Air Force Systems Command um, business of operating and um, exploiting foreign types is based, and then the Groom Lake is where the, the, the flying activities take place from. Um, but they were also taken from places like the Thunderbirds. So, you know, the, these are units where, again, typically to get into the unit, it's going to be a by-name request. We need a maintainer to come in and work on engines. Who do you know? I know this guy is in Germany. You can go and get him, you know, go and speak to him and see, see what you think. And so the, the Red Eagles was the same then. So you had a pool of, of already heavily vetted in terms of technical skills, in terms of temperament, in terms of ability to get the job done, a very small pool of individuals that you were going and drawing from. And the Red Eagles did the same thing. So so, so you had hugely talented people, very motivated, um, had already been used to working on programs of very significant national um, security. Um, and you brought them into the Red Eagles and then you gave them an aeroplane that was completely broken. You said you need to, you would say you need to get it up to, to flying status. And so they had a range of things that they could do. They, they did things called extraction trips. Extraction trips is going to another country that operates the type or operated the type. Um, and with the, uh, I guess, sort of um, support of someone like the CAA or the State Department or whoever it is, you know, greasing the wheels to make it possible going and, and raiding their stores and, and finding what spares they've got available. Um, they went to the Middle East and they went to bazaars where, you know, trophy hunters had salvaged MiG parts from crash sites in Afghanistan. Um, and they were selling these parts in bazaars in, in Cairo, in Egypt. And, and they went there and they bought parts. So they, they had the ability to go and get parts. They could also go to defense contractors in the US and say, we've got a part, we need to have it reverse engineered. Um, they could do that too. But other than that, they were reliant on their own wits. They were reliant on their own skills. Um, I was told about one MiG-21, which had come from Indonesia, that had been sitting in a swamp for so long that inside the cockpit, there was a tide mark, uh, you know, that had, that had been stained. So that above the tide yeah. mark, the, the coloring inside the cockpit had faded from the sun. And below it, there was just algae and slime and all this kind of stuff. So that's the environment that they got the airplane out from. Um, uh, another another guy told me about a MiG-21 that just wouldn't quite fly right. And so they got a plumb line out and they measured the wings and they found that one of the wings had loads more dihedral than the other. I, I, it was anhedral <laughs> yeah. dihedral. I can't remember what it was, but it was bent. You know, mm -hmm. so, so, so they had to reshape the wind, the, the wing, the entire wing had to be bent back into shape. Right. So that was that, that was the kind of thing that they were doing. That was the kind of challenge they were, were working with. Um, and, and I should point out, there was a central figure and if you do read the book, you'll you'll read a lot about him. But his name is Bobby Ellis, and they called him Daddy. Uh, and he had been through the HAV programs, which were the very, very early exploitation programs of the MiGs from 1968 or so. Um, the Red Eagles was stood up in 1977 and then went to Tonopah in 1979. So, you know, he had 10 or 11 or 12 years or more of, of working on MiGs. Um, and he had an encyclopedic knowledge. He knew part numbers. He knew the names of individuals who could do stuff. He could tell you what pump worked on a Su-7 versus a, a Su-17 <laughs> or whether it would fit to a MiG-21 or whatever. He had this encyclopedic knowledge and he was kind of, you know, the leader of the gang. Um, and, and, and simultaneously, the biggest strength and, and arguably at some points, the biggest weakness of the unit as well. But you'll read if, if you're, yeah, if you're going to buy the book or if you're going to read the book, then, then you'll find out more about him. But he was central yeah. to the whole thing. Yeah, I, that was a fascinating part of it for me because, of course, you know the planes are, are sexy and they get the attention. But as we said, the how you keep something like that running takes a special breed of people. And I think we, should, you know, just it's worthy of mention. As you said, with every military deployment, we talk about them more and more. But this is this is just an incredible level of dedication that you read about in the book. So, Steve, what's apart from the classification issues? Are there any things you didn't put in the book, couldn't put in the book, didn't quite make the cut that you would have loved to have put in the book? Are there any things that, you know, we talked about, about Groom Lake a little bit, any other things that maybe at the time you wrote it, you couldn't talk about that you could now, or just things that just didn't quite fit the story. Cause sometimes to keep a story tight, you have to 
to leave out things you'd really like to talk about? Uh, Scott, if I'm being honest, no, I, I dumped everything in there that I <laughs> everything in there that I thought was I thought was worth reading about. So I, I, I was very lucky. I had a really good publisher, Osprey Publishing, who didn't give me really a word count limit. Uh, I think they were interested to see what I would come back with, and they would they were going to take a view on whether it needed to be trimmed down if it was verbose. I, it was a, it was a difficult book to write. I mean, I'm you know I, I look at people like Robert Wilcox. Um, I, I grew up reading lots of different authors, um, and I wanted to try and be like them. I wanted to try and write something like them. And, and as I said right at the beginning, uh, you know, I started, I've spent most of my time, of the 19 books I've written, probably 14 or so of them are monographs. They're just about an aeroplane, you know, pick an aeroplane, talk about it. This was a real challenge. You know, this was, um, I, I don't think I ever really answered your question right at the beginning about um, how you document history. Um, but, but that was the big challenge for me because a, a friend of mine put it really greatly when I was trying to explain to him the challenge that I had with the book. And he said, you could find out what it looked like, you could find out what it sounded like, but you can't find out what it smelled like. And that's that was the challenge. I could find out, I could talk to, I, there were 69 pilots, uh, great, great number. I'm sure it's no coincidence that they ended on 69 pilots, being fighter pilots, but there were 69 pilots who flew the MiGs between 1979 and 1988 when the squadron disbanded. And I interviewed, I think, about 38 of them, 36, 37, 38, something like that. And, uh, and then eventually I managed to get seven or eight maintainers and I talked to some other people as well. Um, and, and you can get, you can ask a question, you can get an answer, but you still don't know what it smelled like. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, and so, Part of the challenge for me was being able to make sure that people's views were represented, um, but 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 where there were dissenting views and people didn't agree with each other, that I was able to talk about what the you know the most likely truth was. Mm -hmm. Or so so I, I I give a voice to both sides, but I'd say look the, on on balance, you know, the balance of evidence or the, the other things I've been able to find out, or most people say this. So so you could tell a story without telling somebody one of your um, sources that they're wrong, one of the people who's part of the story that they're wrong, um, but you could tell the story that maybe is counter to what they remember. So and and that was the that was the biggest challenge. You know, the, the memories as we were talking about off camera before you hit record. Um, I started writing researching this in 2005 or six, and at that point, um, you know, more than more than 20 years old. The memories were more than 20 years old of, of you know even the freshest memories. So um, it's difficult to get everyone to agree. Um, and there were also, you know, again, if you read the book, you'll see there are there are political areas, there are cultural changes that happen within the squadron, uh, particularly in around the mid in the mid mid 80s when the Air Force really wants to start ramping up the number of sorties they're flying they want more tactical air force pilots to be exposed to the squadron or to constant peg um and so they start making some changes organizationally and culturally within the unit uh, and it's there then you start to really get some strong opinions and, and that's difficult to deal with yeah those are hard and i will say i think you navigated those waters adroitly uh through use of narrative through use of footnotes and just you were very upfront in the forward of the book that that's what this was going to be at and you know, I I have a great uh, respect for that, a great appreciation for that, because doing oral histories with people, man, it can be tough, right? Because as you said, that not only are the memories 20 years old, they've had 20 years to set that way, right? So yeah. no one's going to read your book who contributed and said, oh, well, Jimmy said that, I guess he was right. And I'm not saying anyone's wrong. It's just, you know, you have to navigate those waters. And I think you did really well. Uh, I also, as far as I'll never know what those things smelled like to sit in, but some of the detail you give, I think was a, a, as well as anyone could. And I'll give the one that has stuck with me after reading the book because it, it said to me, okay, United States, Great Britain, we have a long history of making some really incredible aircraft. And in all fairness, the Soviet Union has made some, some great aircraft as well. But the thing that really stuck with me was in particular with the MiG-17, and it's uh, stall characteristics and how violent it could be and how unpredictable. And the Soviets had just painted a white line in, in, in the cockpit. It's like, okay, if you're in a spin, just shove the stick to that white line. That is such a Russian 
solution to the problem. And I don't say that in a demeaning way. It is just the, even our pilots, they're not truly conscripts, but we don't have Western, you know, our average pilot is not the average Western pilot. And that just made me feel like I'm sitting in that sort of off green blue cockpit with steam gauges that are a little bit archaic, even by our standards. And you have the picture of the gun camera that partially occludes the, the view forward. And I, I just, that one detail, just put it all in context. Like there is no fancy gimbal mounted instrument. There's no fancy computer. It's, you know, Boris shove stick to white light plane recover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, so I think I, one of the, one of, one of the lovely things about that Scott is that I think, I can't remember if it was Mike Scott who told me that story in the book, but uh, whoever it was, they said the first time they, because they looked at it and thought, that's just retarded. You don't need a white <laughs> right. Line, you don't. And he said the first time they spun a, the MiG-17, they realized it was such a violent affair. The only thing yeah. you could see was a, this blurry right. white line in front of you. So, um, yeah. All right. Well, to close out again, uh, I think it was an incredible effort, an incredible book. Thank you, Steve. Uh, for our listeners, you'll have links to... Uh, for how you can buy the book. I believe it's only hard copy available on the secondary market now, but you can buy uh, the ebook version direct from Amazon and other retailers. Yeah, you go, the, the, the hard copy is out of print and uh, my publisher, I don't think is gonna reprint. I get the publishing rights back in November this year. And oh, so I will I will do another run, um, right. limited edition run. So um, if anyone wants a hard copy, then wait. Um, you can come to oh, my website and, and sign up know. and, and register interest or otherwise yeah as scott says grab the kindle edition on, on amazon right um so having said that and your website what's coming up for you steve davies where can people find more of you what's your website what are you working on okay so well 10 true.com as in uh, one zero percent true um is my website and uh, i podcast now that's what I, that's what i spend mm -hmm. my time doing i i'm there's a couple of books that I've written that are out of print that I'm kind of interested in taking back and updating and republishing myself. I don't think I would ever go back to writing for a publisher. I think self-publishing is the way forward for me now. So, so I might I might publish a couple of my older books, might republish a couple of my older books, bring them okay. up to date. Um, but podcasting is what I tend to do now. So 10% awesome. um, is a podcast that is mostly hosted on YouTube, but you can also get it on Apple podcast and Spotify and Google podcast and all the usual providers. So right. um, that's what I'm doing. And uh, yeah, I will, I will highlight that again, 10percenttrue.com. Uh, Steve prides himself on trying to find non mainstream uh, people to interview. That doesn't mean they don't have the background or that it's not topical. It's just that sometimes you can find the same person being interviewed two, three or four times on different by different uh, interviewers. And Steve really tries to go and find fresh and new. And if I do say so myself, very entertaining material, uh, well brought out. In addition to that, though, Steve is coming on board authentic uh, as an associate, and he is going to very shortly begin hosting our series on the F-35. Uh, you'll be seeing, hearing that and seeing that from us. Uh, in the upcoming weeks. But Steve, would you give us an idea sort of what people can expect there? Greatness. <laughs> <laughs> I would expect it's, nothing less from both you and the F-35 program. <laughs> it's, it's the humility that uh, I Yeah, I yeah that's right. Um, humility so, is really my best trait, I think. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm really looking forward to working on this with, with you guys. So so as, as you said, Scott, my, my podcast is, um, is interviewing aviators. I, I took the view... Um, having not written anything for a few years that I missed talking to aviators about their careers. And I thought, well, if I can put a podcast out there, that might interest aviators in talking to me. And then, and people might be interested in listening to it. Um, so it's sort of the scratch that itch and, and yeah. perhaps make other people happy at the same time. So I've enjoyed doing that. I haven't actually done anything about the F-35 on my channel. So, so I'm excited about working with you guys you guys have um, given me a very interesting individual to, to start the series with. We're going to do six six part interviews 
um, not all with the same person. Um, I, I don't know if you really want me to sort of break down how it's going to work out or if you're going to keep that in reserve for the moment. I, I think we can just give a little tease that there'll be six initial episodes that talk about the F-35, but the F-35 is simultaneously 20 years old and brand new. So its story is just beginning. Uh, and so this is going to be an open-ended podcast. We are going to say that um, you'll get six episodes with Steve hosting, and it'll talk about the F-35 story to date. And then Steve and I have talked about, I think what we're going to do is as I start doing the same thing on the F-22 series, at some point we're going to do a joint effort on the F-22 and the F-35 or the modern warfare air domain. And that's going to allow us, after we get past those initial six on each aircraft to share those duties if we need be. So for Authentic, Steve's going to be your F-35 guy and I'm going to be your F-22 guy. But if something comes up, if, uh, heaven forbid, a, an F-35 skids off a carrier deck or an, FF, an F-22 shoots down a uh, Chinese spy balloon and one of us is not available, the other one can maybe grab the hosting duties there. So that's what you have to look forward to coming from us. Yeah, should be good. All right. And as always, you can get us at authenticmedia.io. Steve's site is 10percenttrue.com. Steve, uh, if you'd like the last word, it is yours. Well, I just want to say thank you very much for inviting me onto the podcast, Scott. I'm looking forward to working with you. I'm looking forward to producing some good quality content for Authentic Media. And I... um, yeah, it's been it's been great chatting. I, I've never actually I, I you know I tend to be on the other side of the ch of the mm -hmm. desk. I, t I tend to be the person yeah. who's asking the questions and then not not doing any talking. So, so this <laughs> has been an experience. I've, I've I've enjoyed it. Well, I've enjoyed it a lot too, and I look forward to working with you a lot more. So for our listeners, uh, we will talk to you next time, and look out for both of those channels. This is authentic.